0: Florence Nightingale wrote that hospitals are a curse to civilization. But in Victorian Britain, they were also spaces of innovation and a reflection of social values and social change. Hello, I'm Lucy. This week on Footnoting History, I'll be discussing hospitals in Victorian Britain. Then, as now, hospitals were magnets for professional talent and for debates on how and for whom medicine should be provided. From the beginning of Queen Victoria's reign in the 1830s to her death in 1901, the social landscape of Britain was profoundly changed. Both the form and the function of hospitals evolved under the influence of new ideas and new norms in both science and society. The theory and practice of hospital care were influenced by many different groups – social reformers, innovative architects, and, not least, medical practitioners themselves. Over the course of the 19th century, hospitals gained steadily in importance to the medical professional as a whole. Methods of the provision of care remained diverse. Pharmacies and dispensaries continued to thrive – to say nothing of informal care provided within groups of family members and friends. But alongside all these, hospitals, of all sorts, gained in importance. Many hospitals were small institutions, privately funded, dedicated to a particular parish, a particular community, or a particular set of needs. Larger institutions, though still in the minority, functioned as places for professional training and workplaces where scientific methods could be performed in every sense. Audiences for new surgical procedures or intricate anatomies could sometimes include members of the public as well as medical students. Hospitals promoted new views of the body and used new instruments. Perhaps most importantly, they also provided a forum for upwardly mobile doctors who could not afford to establish themselves in private practice. The financial, and thus social, barriers to establishing a respectable and lucrative private practice are addressed repeatedly in works of Victorian fiction. Perhaps most famously in the Sherlock Holmes stories, not just in the person of Dr. Watson, but in figures such as Dr. Percy Trevelyan in *The Resident Patient*, hospital work expanded considerably the opportunities for men, and in the second half of the century, women seeking to practice medicine. As a side note, both the training of women as doctors and the way society perceived their work contributed to making women's practice of medicine a largely separate sphere for most of the 19th century. So. Awesome Lady Doctors will have to be a separate podcast topic. Women were very active as nurses. Thanks in part to the vigorous campaigning of Florence Nightingale, it was seen as a suitable womanly employment for women of good character. Good character was, as so often in Victorian Britain, code for from the middle and upper classes. Those whom hospitals were designed to serve were still predominantly the working classes, if not exclusively those whom Florence Nightingale referred to as the sick and maimed poor in her notes on hospitals. Many hospitals were lay foundations, made by individuals and societies for charitable purposes. Increasingly, though, specialist physicians founded their own departments and even their own hospitals. The famous surgeon Astley Cooper, for instance, expanded an infirmary into an eye-and-ear hospital. Eye hospitals were the most popular specialty hospital, but there were others. Though their fabulous Victorian names have usually changed, many survive as centres of medical practice today. The Benevolent Dispensary for the Relief of the Poor Afflicted with Fistula, Piles, and Other Diseases of the Rectum and Lower Intestines was known as St. Mark's Hospital by the 1850s. The Hospital for the Cure of Deformities eventually became the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital. General hospitals, however, remained more, well, generally popular with members of the medical profession. General hospitals were less expensive and provided more professional training. Hospitals and their beautification could also serve as an expression of what Richard Cork has called the Victorian preoccupation with unimpeachable respectability. Nowhere, perhaps, was this more symbolically apparent than in the construction of new buildings for St. Thomas Hospital in London, directly across from the Houses of Parliament in Westminster the hospital buildings were unveiled by no less a person than Queen Victoria herself. Failures of Victorian care, however, could also be highlighted in depictions of hospitals in art and literature. Then, as now, casual wards functioned all too often as the only source of necessary medical care for the poor, struggling with inadequate work and inadequate welfare. In 1874, the artist Luke Fildes, produced a painting of those waiting for admission to such a ward, with huddled, undernourished children, disabled adults, a snarling dog, and an unusually compassionate police constable giving directions to a shivering and arthritic man. The Times critic hated it, saying that the subject was unpleasant, betraying the fact that painters had forgotten the true purpose of art, which was, of course, quote, to adorn English living rooms, unquote. Charles Dickens, on the other hand, admired Phil's portrayal of dumb, wet, silent horrors. Of course Dickens liked it. He was one of Victorian Britain's best and most famous exponents of social criticism in literature. His last completed novel, Our Mutual Friend, even includes emotional scenes in a clean and well-appointed children's hospital, which is contrasted dramatically with the polluted and overcrowded slums where many of its tiny patients lived. The cities of Victorian Britain were expanding rapidly, and hospitals were struggling to keep up. As populations grew larger and more dense, the need to prevent, contain, and treat disease became ever more acute. London alone, by the middle of the 19th century, had no fewer than 24 hospitals. By the same date, many large provincial cities and county seats had their own general hospitals as well. One such institution was the general infirmary in the industrial powerhouse of Leeds, which expanded along with the city's population. Its buildings, designed by George Gilbert Scott and constructed in the 1860s, were glorious fantasies of neo-Gothic extravagance. They were also constructed using the most up-to-date medical theories, with the significant input of Florence Nightingale. This was based on her own hands-on experience and on research into state-of-the-art hospitals elsewhere in Europe. The fact that the original infirmary block was built onto only three decades later might at first glance seem like a shame to architecture buffs, save the neo-Gothic extravagance. But the fact that Gilbert Scott's buildings could be expanded upon in this way was part of their design, allowing the hospital to grow as needed without compromising the circulation of light air, and medical professionals that its novel pavilion plan allowed. Initially, the hospital could accommodate over 300 patients in wards linked to the central hospital block. This design was in line with what Florence Nightingale envisioned in her notes on hospitals, allowing administrative offices to be separated from care wards, but with a view to facility of communication throughout and to securing the sanitary state of the hospital, in her own words. Victorian hospitals, by their very existence, testified to the fact that the nobility of medicine was seen as deserving of noble surroundings. Hospital art and architecture were held to be cheering and strengthening to the sick who were served there. This has since been borne out by the scientific research of the late 20th and early 21st centuries, incidentally. St. Thomas in London, the Leeds General Infirmary, and other hospitals like them, represented the most up-to-date medical theory and most grand architectural invention of late Victorian Britain, and served as a monument to how this prosperous society desired to see itself. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at HistoryFootnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.